0: In his book, The Will to Live On, the world-class Jewish novelist Hermann Wuch wrestles with the question, Will Hitler Win? His thesis is that Hitler and his murderous thugs believed that if they could kill Eastern Judaism, the rest of the world Jewry would never recover from the blow. They would become weak and a minority that would not be able to replace its numbers in the great population competition. He challenges, especially American Jews, not to just assimilate into the culture. This question of the continuance of the Jewish people is important. How does the first century Jew, John, who closed the New Testament, answer Wook's question about the continuation and the protection of the Jewish people? This is Truth Encounter a program that over the last several months has been challenging you to open the tough last book of the Bible and read it and think about the revelation for yourself. Our Bible teacher, Dave Wurtzen, invites you today to turn to Revelation chapter 12, a chapter that deals with Wook's question about the preservation of his people.
1: Probably the ultimate spooky thing that you can ever say to anyone is 666. Down through the years... It can even come up on a license plate, or it can come up in, in some kind of a master charge bill or something. Whenever you see 666, man, there's just kind of an electricity that goes through you, and what in the world's going on with this 666? Well, 666 is in the chapter of Revelation that we're going to look at today. Revelation chapter 13. And we're just going to begin to be able to study about the greatest political and religious deceiver of all time. And this guy's name is, in fact, in the... In, Revelation chapter 13 gives this person, this greatest political dishear of all time, it gives him the name 666. Where does this come from? What's going on? Turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 13. As we finished Revelation chapter 12, and we were looking at that last section, where it talked about this dragon. Remember in Revelation chapter 12, we were introduced to these characters, this pregnant woman that represented the covenant people of Israel that were going to give birth to the Messiah. Remember we had the red dragon, this gruesome creature that was trying to destroy the child. And then we had that dragon coming upon the birth of that male child and trying to snuff out the gift of God. And then the Messiah is snatched away into heaven. The book of Revelation in chapter 12 jumps right through the life of Christ, right through his death, right through his resurrection, and just declares his victory because Jesus is caught up to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. But the dragon doesn't quit. The dragon keeps coming after. Down through church history, Satan continues to be the roaring lion. 1 Peter talks about him, a roaring lion that's going about seeking whom he may devour. That's going to continue into the tribulation period. Because the last part of chapter 12 talks about the remnant of believing Israelites. During the tribulation period, contrary to what's happening now in the church today, where the dominant number of people that believe in Jesus are Gentiles, during the tribulation period, God's going to begin once again to powerfully open the hearts of his Jewish people. And the book of Revelation, as well as the book of Daniel, promise a future for the physical children of Abraham, our Jewish friends, who have had the promises of God and had the covenants and had all the wonders of the revelation of the Old Testament. And now they've lived many years not believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet all through those years, God has created a remnant who do respond and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And there are organizations like the Friends of Israel and like Jews for Jesus. But those organizations always labor with tremendous odds against them as the majority of the Jewish people don't respond to Jesus. Well, our precious Father in Heaven loves him so much. During the tribulation period, he's going to make a concerted effort To bring all of his promises from the Old Testament into fruition. And that's what we have described when you look at verse 13 of chapter 12. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Halfway through the tribulation period, there's a gigantic spiritual conflict, and Michael the archangel casts Satan down to the earth. And this is going to be Satan's last final attack against the people of God during the tribulation period. And Satan knows that he has only a very short time, so he begins to powerfully persecute the woman, was given the wings of a great eagle. Look what it says verse 14. So that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a times, times, and a half a time. That's 42 months, or three and a half years. Out of the serpent's reach. What this is like, it uses the language of the Exodus. And what the book of Revelation is describing is like a new exodus for the people of God. They flee from Jerusalem where the Antichrist has set up a false idol in the temple that's been re-erected. And the Jewish remnant flees out into the wilderness to a place, we're not sure exactly where that will be, but it will be a place in the desert that God prepared to protect them. And the Antichrist will be seeking to destroy them. He represents on earth the dragon's power and he's sending forth tremendous uh, armies and those seeking to destroy them. The wings of the great eagle in the book of Deuteronomy are presented to be the wings of Yahweh, the wings of the Lord. And it's like when the Lord parted the Red Sea and made it possible for the Israelites to get through the Red Sea into the Sinai Peninsula where they could meet God in the wilderness. And Pharaoh was destroyed in the waters of the Red Sea. John is picking up on that same reality from the Old Testament and declaring there's going to be a future, a future protection of the people of God. And just like Exodus describes God as having the wings of an eagle that can bear his people into the wilderness to protect them, in the New Testament we have that the final period of the tribulation period, in these final three and a half years, God's gonna take a small remnant of his people who will believe in him and protect them and give them protection and give them safety and security. The Antichrist, representing the power of the serpent, is gonna hate this. So, what does he do? It says in verse 15, From his mouth the serpent will spew water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. In the book of Jeremiah, when the armies of Babylon are welling up against the children of Israel and Jeremiah is predicting that that there's going to be great war, there's going to be great uh, conflict in the Middle East, God pictures that in the prophet Jeremiah's thinking as a mighty swelling war. Storm, like a great river, like a great flood. Here in Texas, we know what it's like, you know, to hear the devastating news that there's been tons and tons of rain. We wish for it now. But remember, in summers past or in falls past, when a tremendous storms hit and the Trinity, which ordinarily is just a little trickle, you can almost jump across it, suddenly we hear how it becomes a muddy torrent and everything downriver gets swept away. That would happen in Israel as well and it happened in the ancient Near East as well. The rains would come and these rivers would swell like the Jordan River, which is ordinarily very small, would swell to gigantic proportions and many people would lose their lives. So what Jeremiah used, that picture of a gigantic flood that comes and destroys many people, it uses that to represent an army, the Babylonian army, which in 586 came and destroyed the southern kingdom. But the Bible predicts it just as there was an attack against Israel under the Old Covenant. It predicts in the book of Revelation at the end of time there are again going to be armies that swell up like the flood. And I believe that if we're consistent with the Old Testament prophetic imagery that the gigantic amount of water that the dragon spews out against this remnant of Israelites, the literal reality behind that are the armies of the pagan world, of the idolatrous materialist world that rise up and are trying, just like Hitler did in World War II, to snuff out the Jewish people. So we've already seen kind of precursors of this kind of thing happening where the Nazis' armies rose up like a flood, like a gigantic, mighty flooding waters that try to destroy God's people. But here we read that in the tribulation period, God's going to protect them. It says the earth helped the woman and opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon, that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. The literal reality probably behind that could possibly even be gigantic earthquakes. And and just like the earth did open its mouth and destroy Korah, who rebelled against Moses in the wilderness wanderings, it's possible because there, in the Middle East there are tons and tons of, of fault lines that go through there. And it's very possible, just like L.A., can have a gigantic earthquake that causes great devastation. It's possible that Revelation is predicting that God causes even the earth itself to bring protection for his people. Whatever one thing we can be sure of is that as the children of Israel, in the final three and a half years, the small remnant are there in the wilderness being protected, God is beginning to woo them to himself. He's beginning to open their eyes and he's providing protection for them. Satan hates this. And through his agents, Antichrist, that will be introduced in chapter 13, Satan's going to get more and more angry because as God protects this small group of Israelites, this remnant that are beginning to open up their eyes, it makes him furious. So it says in verse 17, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. We have the story of the Bible coming full circle because remember in Genesis chapter 3 that we've often studied as we've gone through the book of Revelation because it's one of the central passages of the Old Testament that lays out the story. It talks about a great animosity that's going to take place between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and this great conflict. And it talks about the, the great serpent being able to hit the heel and to hurt the seed of the woman. And we have that ultimately manifested on Calvary, but it's also the serpent biting at those that choose to believe in the Messiah, I would include the suffering of the church today as being part of that tremendous conflict that the evil one has against the holy people of God. Some of the hard times that you go through represent the serpent biting at your heels, trying to get you. Some of the great struggles that are taking place in the world that we're going to see at the end of this service. As as many believers around the world are being persecuted, it's this expression of the dragon angry. And he snaps at those that have come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things you need to nail down is that we're in a great conflict. Right now, during the church age, that conflict goes on. The book of Revelation is telling us that the conflict is going to accelerate right into the tribulation period. The serpent is furious. He's angry because God is taking away his prey. And he's not able to destroy them. And it says that he makes war against those, against the rest of the offspring of the woman. And it says something very important about the rest of her offspring that I want to underscore before we begin to look at the beginning of the spirit of Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13. I want you to look very carefully at verse 17. Because I think the Holy Spirit's really spoken to me about even today in God's church, we need to be characterized by these two attributes of those that are being persecuted by the dragon. It says this. The dragon was enraged in verse 17 of chapter 12 at the woman. And he went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who are the rest of her offspring during the tribulation period? They are those who obey God's commandments. And they hold to the testimony of Jesus. I want you to see the balance between those two things. You see, the scriptures saying that those that are part of the kingdom family, those that are part of those that become part of the family of God, are those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. What is the testimony of Jesus? It's the testimony that Jesus creates in our hearts through his power. And the objective content of that testimony is Jesus died for us. Jesus rose again from the grave. We believe it with all of our hearts. And Jesus has now come into our life to give us a new life. That's the testimony of Jesus in a nutshell. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleansed us from all sin. It is the power of the resurrection that gives us new life. But I want you to see that the remnant was also characterized not only by the testimony of Jesus, but they were also characterized by those who hold to the commandments of God. Look at it. Those who obey God's commandments. It's possible that today in your own Christian life, your life seems impotent spiritually. It seems like this Jesus thing is not doing it for you. And it's possible that the reason you're not experiencing the power of this new life is that you're being disobedient. You're not obeying the instructions of your heavenly daddy. You're not living out his power in your life. And what I want to really encourage you, because the book of Revelation stresses this over and over and over again. The book of Revelation is saying that when you believe the testimony of Jesus, and Jesus really comes inside of you, it's the most powerful, transforming, life-changing thing that can ever happen to you. And it generates ethics. It generates the heart fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. It gives us victory over stealing. It gives us victory over pride. It gives us victory over murderous thoughts and and anger and lashing out at others. It gives us victory over covetousness. And this should be a growing, ever-increasing, strengthening thing in our life. And I want to challenge you today. If you're kind of just kind of out there in in the, yeah, I'm a believer, I know Jesus... But I'm not really seeing obedience in my life. You need to open your life to the power of Jesus. You need to get really serious about letting his power to enable you and to transform you. And give you the power to, 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 to obey him. That means that in order to know what you need to obey, you need to be into the commandments of this book. You need to be reading this book daily. With incredible as I did a class at the seminary on the spiritual life. The primacy of a minister's spiritual life. This past week I was grading their papers and what an encouragement it was. One pastor after another in their papers as they developed a life plan for what am I going to do to make sure that I finish strong, that I maintain my intimacy with Jesus, that I don't just become someone that's a, a talking head that gives all of this information but I don't really live the life. These men and women got really serious and almost every single one of them recommitted themselves in their purpose plan to spending time every single day carefully reading this book the vast majority of them committed themselves to reading through this book annually to read right through the entire word of god and there's many plans that you can use to do that if we're not reading this book i cannot teach you the commandments of god on sunday morning sufficiently for you to be a disciple of jesus you understand that i can't make you strong spiritually I can't give you the the guidance that you need. Just not going to make it. You got to decide for yourself. You need to get accountable with two or three other people so that you can daily be into this book. And how it thrilled my heart as one of these ministers after another, these men and women, many of them were seasoned missionaries and seasoned pastors. And they would just come out with real strong affirmation on their, on their papers. They would say, since we had this class together, I have recommitted myself to never let my time in the Word to slide. And I have committed myself from now until the Lord takes me home. Every single year, I'm going to go through every word of the scripture. And boy, I just thought about how we all need to recommit ourselves to that. So that it can be said of us, we are the remnant. They are one who holds to the testimony of Jesus, amen? And they are those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, but they also are those who obey the commandments of God. I want us to go out this week. Man, if you're selling cards this week, I want someone that you sell cards to, if they hear you mention the name of Jesus in praise, that they would think automatically, this is a born-again car salesman. Man, I'll believe them. I can buy this car because this car salesman will never trick me, never exaggerate, never oversell me. Man, it's a born-again car salesman. Man, I'll sign the dotted line because it's gotta be a good deal. That's what I want to happen. If you're selling insurance, I want it to be, man, if somebody finds out that you're a born-again insurance salesman, it means, man, the Ten Commandments are part of your whole being. You would never bear false testimony. You would always be right out there with the truth. could totally count on them. I want it to be that when, 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 when we're in school and kids are talking to their friends about Jesus, when the kids mention that they're born again and they talk about their parents, I want it to be that when you find out that there's a the born-again parent, immorality would never invade the heart of that born-again married husband and wife. Because Jesus is transforming their lives. That's what Revelation is saying. James said it very simply. Faith, the testimony about Jesus, without works, without leading to obedience, it's just ineffective. It produces a dead church. It produces ineffectiveness. It produces a corpse of Christianity. I want Satan to have something to get really angry about in my own life and in your life. And what's going to make him get really angry and we're going to have to totally trust upon the protection of Jesus is when we really hold to the testimony of Jesus, not just with words, but it gets totally into the fabric of our lives. And we live out the commandments of Jesus. In the tribulation period, God's going to create millions, millions of people that believe like that. And I believe he's doing it today. Around the world, he's raising up. Millions of believers... ...who don't just give a verbal testimony... ...of their faith in the blood of Jesus... ...and the commitment to the resurrection... ...but man, that testimony... ...is the core of their being... ...and it radically produces... ...obedience to the commandments of God. Satan's not going to quit though. And in the book of Revelation... ...chapter 13, it says that... ...the dragon stood on the shore of the sea... ...remind us of exactly what Daniel saw... In Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel the prophet is standing by the shore of the sea. Out of the sea come these four horrible beasts. And you can tell that John the Apostle just read Daniel over and over again. As a Jewish kid, he was totally immersed in the book of Daniel. And here, John changes the imagery a little bit. Instead of it being the prophet Daniel standing on the shore of the sea, we have the dragon himself standing, Satan himself standing on the shore of the sea. What does the sea represent in the book of Daniel? The book of Daniel explains that for a Jew... ...when they would go down to the Mediterranean Sea... ...rather than them thinking of the sea is the place I want to go... ...and I want to join the Navy so I can see the world... ...and I can hardly wait to go on a voyage to an Israelite... ...in the Old Testament when they looked at the Mediterranean... ...it looked like the pit of evil, the pit of chaos. The Phoenicians would make boats and go all over the ancient world... ...but the Israelites were landlubbers. They didn't want to go out on the sea... And so, for the for the Israelite-inspired poets, they used the raging Mediterranean Sea. And you can imagine, before the days of big, big nuclear-powered boats and and boats that seem that they can conquer the sea, can you imagine going out into the ocean with these little wooden craft? And the Israelites would think that that would be the greatest horror you can imagine. And so that when they did go out and they lost sight of land, they looked down to the depths of the ocean. And some of you that are afraid of water know what it's like. You get out there and you look down and it's nothing but inky blackness. Some of you have even almost drowned and you could feel yourself seeking down in it. And if a lifeguard hadn't dove in there and grabbed a hold of you and yanked you from oblivion, man, you'd be gone. And if you've had that kind of experience and you can understand this horror of what the sea represents... And the great Israelite-inspired poets use the sea to represent the nations. How all through history, the nations are like a tumultuous sea. And you never know when gigantic storms are going to come up. Just like in the Caribbean, one night after another, our weather forecasters have to tell us about another storm that's arisen in this chaotic sea. And what what it's saying in this text is that is that the dragon is standing on the shore of the sea. And as the nations compete with one another, time and time again, a great storm arises and a beast comes up out of that sea that's really destructive. So we read here, that I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads and with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but he had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne in great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished, and they followed the beast. Men worshipped the beast because he had been given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? And then it goes on and describes the blasphemous names. Who is this beast? This is the Antichrist. In Daniel chapter 7, it pictured that the fourth empire, the one that was this awful beast that was kind of a composite of all the other, the Lion of Babylon and the Bear of Medo-Persia and the Leopard of Greece and this awful ultimate Roman Empire. Revelation is picking up on Daniel chapter 7 and saying that this fourth beast is indescribable. It presents this, this beast that comes up as having seven heads... In the Bible, and in Daniel, that's come to fruition, you have the same imagery used there. The idea in the Bible is that there has been seven dominant world empires that seek to conquer the world. As you open the pages of the Bible, and this will really help the Bible to come together for you. As the serpent tries to snuff out the covenant people of God, the first agent that you have that rises up out of the sea is the nation of Egypt. Egypt rises up and seeks to destroy the covenant people of God. Joseph and his brothers go down into Egypt. They become a mighty people. And you open up to the first pages of Exodus. There arose a king who knew not Joseph. And he institutes a holocaust against the baby boy Israelites. And you have the dragon of Pharaoh empowered by Satan, the ultimate dragon, who's trying to destroy the people of God. That's the first mighty empire. The Egyptians rose up and said, We're going to rule. As we go further in the Old Testament, the next mighty, mighty nation that rises up and takes the place as Israel's enemy is the kingdom of Assyria. The people that grew up around the capital city of Nineveh. When you study the book of Jonah, you read about God seeking to reach the Assyrian capital. But the Assyrians are presented as the great dragon, the great military force that rises in the world and seeks to destroy God's covenant people, the Israelites. As we come to the book of Daniel, we're introduced to the third beast that rises up. It's the head of the image that Daniel sees in Daniel 2, and that's the kingdom of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar is the one that attacks the city of Jerusalem and burns the temple and takes all the people into captivity and demolishes the nation of Judea. The Jewish, the southern kingdom is destroyed by this beast that rises up out of the sea. Then we read in the book of Daniel how that Babylonian beast is subdued and destroyed by the second beast that rises up. And it will be the fourth beast as far as the seven heads are concerned. It is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. And right in the book of Daniel, the whole world empire shifts from being focused on Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and the new Babylonian empire to the attack of Cyrus. And Medo-Persia takes over all the then known world. And that's when you can just link it together with your history of the Western world because you know about the great conflict that took place between Persia and the kingdom of Greece. And we have Greece being the leopard. It's the next beast that rises up, the fifth beast, that overcomes the bear of Medo-Persia. But then Greece is overpowered by the sixth beast, which is this mighty Roman Empire. The Roman Empire never is really outwardly defeated. There never was a mighty nation like Babylon or like Greece. There never was another mighty people that rose up. Yeah, there was the attack of the Germanic tribes and the attack of the Visigoths and the Goths. But in reality, the Roman world was never totally conquered by a greater kingdom. Instead, it just kind of eat. It kind of just oozed away. And what the book of Daniel was saying is that the Western power, that Western Roman Greek combination of Babylonian, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome was going to be the dominant cultural force in the world. And we'd have these cataclysmic challenges from time to time in history. So as you look at history, you see moments when another great leader rises up. And so, for example, you, know, you have like the Bismarck in World War I, the, German, the Germans rise up, the great Prussian Empire, and they're going to conquer the world. And the whole world is plunged into World War I. And then suddenly they're thrown to defeat. Hitler, when you study the history of Hitler... Hitler's another beast that rises up out of the sea. In fact, J. Vernon McGee actually taught he was the Antichrist. He was the literal final manifestation of Antichrist. And he had to recant when we defeated him in World War II. And that the scenario didn't work out. But I want you to know that Hitler had the spirit of this beast... It was like a precursor, it was like a foretaste. In fact, I think the whole story of the 20th century should give us incredible insight into what Revelation's teaching us because we've actually almost seen like a, a live rehearsal of what the tribulation period is going to be like. The beast rises up and, and Hitler declared, this is the Third Reich. There is going to be a thousand year Nazi reign. It lasted about five and a half, six and a half years. And that was it. But we saw a precursor of the kind of hatred, the kind of blasphemy, the kind of murderous violence that the evil one will unleash. What the Bible teaches is that in the tribulation period, there's going to be a revival of that Roman world... Now I don't believe personally that it needs to just be limited to the old Roman Empire, because I think it's more of a cultural thing. It's a way of thinking. And I think it represents this whole world-dominating power of, of the Western civilization. And if you take all the born and believers out of that Western civilization and take them home to you the Lord, then what you have left is just power and materialism and sensuality and immorality and cruel violence. And it's going to rise up, and there's going to be a great leader that rises up and begins to take control of the world. And that's the seventh power. That's the seventh beast that rises up, that renewal of that, the combination of all the other empires combined together during the tribulation period is the last final time in the tribulation period when Satan tries to mount his opposition against the living God. Now, we have to decide in our own lives, which side are we going to be on? And one of the things that we mentioned, like I talk about a future Antichrist, one of the things I want you to realize as we introduce the idea of Antichrist is that Antichrist in the scripture is presented as a person who has risen down through history like a Hitler... Like some of the other great opponents that tried to destroy the church, like you know, even some of the persecution going on in the world today, Antichrist is a person, and he will be an ultimate evil person who will come on the stage of the history of planet Earth. But I also want you to realize that the Bible presents the idea that, that Antichrist is a spirit. It's a spirit of arrogance. It's a spirit of violence. It's a spirit of hatred for God's people. And that spirit, according to 1 John chapter 2, is very much at work in the world today. And we're beginning to see the dividing lines. We're beginning to see that those that really believe in the testimony of Jesus and those that are seeking to live through the power of Jesus ethically and morally according to Jesus' principles of living, they're on one side. And those that reject him, those who believe in secularism, or those that believe in another God, or those that reject the absolute authority of the Word of God, they're on another side. We need to feel solidarity with all those who truly believe in the testimony of Jesus.
0: The testimony of Jesus, the fact that he is the Messiah that the Old Testament promised, The fact that he is the sacrifice that paid the penalty for our sins deserved. The fact that he is the one man who has lived on earth who conquered death. Listen to Jesus as he testifies to you in the court of your life. What judgment have you come to about the son of David? I pray that you will say yes to Jesus, believe the truth about him, and allow him to take up residence in your life. This relationship begins the moment you invite Him into the house of your life. Why not pray to Him now and ask Him to come in?